Well, good morning there, Valley Bible Church. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We're really excited to continue to dive into our series through the Gospel of John. We're finding it to be really refreshing and incredibly insightful. We're, we're jumping into our third series now. We've kind of packaged them in about three chapters or so. And so this series is called Miraculous Conflict. And we're covering chapters five, six, and seven. And what we're finding in these three chapters is really something uh, shocking, surprising, and we think also very insightful. See, what happens in these chapters is Jesus performs a miraculous sign, or Jesus speaks of and makes a strong statement about his miraculous power. And the response to that is one of conflict, which is kind of strange. We would think that Jesus would get a you know, an applause or get really good attention for these miraculous signs. But what he gets rather is this conflict, this, this negative conflict. And what we're finding is, is this kind of response is actually teaching a lot about ourselves and kind of our relationship to God and how we follow Jesus, that we could kind of place ourselves in the story here and learn a lot about our own hearts. Now, as we jump into our study for this Sunday, I want to First, have you entertain a question for me? And this is the question. I want you to, to think for a moment and see what's the kind of first answer that pops into your head. Here's my question for this morning. What causes us or what stops us from believing? What causes us not to listen to God? What causes us not to hear Jesus' words and believe them? What, what stops us from trusting? What stops us from having faith? Now think for that, think on that for a moment. Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is evidence, proof. Maybe what stops us from taking that step of trust and stops us from really hearing Jesus' words and believing in them completely is evidence. Well, there's just a lack of evidence. I need more evidence. There's not enough evidence. Or I just haven't examined enough evidence. However, however you put that and phrase that. Well, I think that's actually a really good answer. Now, I only think it's part of the answer, but I think it's a really good answer. And I think the gospel writer, John, would give that, really that same kind of answer. You see, John loves the term belief. He loves it. It's like his favorite term in the gospel of John. He, he, it's just littered uh, uh, his gospels with the word, or his gospel with the word belief. Now, that doesn't mean that he's against evidence or he, he finds evidence as something that is opposite of belief. No, that's not the case at all. Rather, for John, belief is something that comes from evidence or is supported by evidence. We see this. In the beginning of John's gospel, we see uh, this guy named Nathaniel. And, he, and he, he comes to Jesus because his brother's testimony about Jesus just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough evidence, so he needed more. And then he encountered Jesus and that's what he started to believe. At the end of the Gospel of John, we see a similar thing. One of Jesus' closest followers named uh, Thomas didn't believe in his friend's testimony that Jesus Christ had risen from the grave. And so Thomas, he needs more, and he asks for more, and Jesus gives him more proof. So we see there's not an opposition there. So it's not bad to answer that question with, yeah, there needs to be evidence. But there's something else. That's not the complete answer, the full answer. What we're going to see in our passage this morning is Jesus is going to plug in something else to that answer. 
He's going to say there's something else that stops us from believing. There's something else that stops us from hearing. Something else that stops us from trusting and taking that step of faith. It's not just evidence. Jesus will tell us it's our heart. It's our heart. It's what we love deep down in here. That what we love really determines what we'll listen to. What we'll actually give credence to. What we're open to hearing. Think about it. If, if we love ourselves so much, if we, if we love ourselves as, as the number one thing in our life, would we really ever listen to anything that diminished our self-esteem or our self-worth? See, what we love will determine what we listen to. And if we really love something deep down in our heart as the top thing in our life, it's hard for us to listen to anything that would diminish that thing. Let me show you this from our passage this morning in John chapter 5. And we could summarize the main idea of Jesus' teaching in this passage with our big idea for this morning. And the big idea is this. What stops us from believing? What stops us from hearing? The big idea answers that question. The big idea is this. Our hearts keep us from hearing. Our hearts keep us from hearing. If you're going to write just one thing now, we want to make sure you write down that big idea. Our hearts keep us from hearing. Keep us from hearing. This is what really blocks us from encountering and fully grasping and interacting with Jesus' teaching. Let me show you this from our passage this morning. We're going to start in verse 31, and here's what we're going to see with Jesus. is Jesus is is almost going to put himself kind of in a courtroom-like setting. He is just going to list all this evidence, all these witnesses before this group of religious leaders that he's interacting with. And he's going to just do one right after the other, kind of listing all the evidence, listing all the witnesses. And he's basically going to say, look at all of these, and yet you don't hear. Look at all of these, and yet you don't listen. And then he'll get to the root cause. He'll say, here's why. It's because your hearts keep you from listening. Your love keeps you from listening. Your heart keeps you from hearing. Let's see how Jesus shows this point. Let's look at verse 31. Jesus said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. First, Jesus is setting up what he's about to do. You see that in that verse? It's a very simple sentence. Jesus is basically saying, I'm not the only one who talks about myself. I'm not my only witness. There are other people going to come into this courtroom, if you will, and I'm going to show that they affirm the truthfulness of my claims. I'm not the only one who's saying that I am true. So Jesus is kind of backing up this idea that there needs to be multiple witnesses for, for something to be uh, felt as true or more con- conceivable to be true. So this is supported in the Old Testament, supported in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you had to have many witnesses in order for something like a capital case to be considered a fair trial. If somebody was uh, committed murder and there needed to be a conviction, in order for that to happen, there had to be multiple witnesses. Now, the New Testament confirms that as well. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church will tell them you need multiple witnesses when you're dealing with sin. Jesus does the same thing 
when he's talking about dealing with sin in the church, he says we need multiple witnesses to handle this affair to make sure things are done justly and fairly. So Jesus is accepting this principle. He's saying, okay, so I need to call some witnesses. I need to present some evidence. So Jesus is going to list off a very um, high caliber list of witnesses. These are probably the best kind of defense he could give to the truthfulness of his claims. First, he starts with witness number one, John the Baptist. This is verse 32. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, he's speaking of John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a, lo- for a while in his light. So Jesus says, look, you guys sent a group of people to investigate this guy named John. We saw earlier in our study of the Gospel of John that John the Baptist was kind of that forerunner, the precursor to the ministry of Jesus. He came to kind of set Jesus up, if you will. He was kind of the the hype guy uh, to get people ready for Jesus. And it sounds like the Jewish followers were excited about that. These Jewish leaders were excited about that. It says they were rejoicing for a while. They, They saw the ministry of John and they were very intrigued and excited about what he was saying. John was saying that that, that a great one would come, greater than him. Somebody whose sandals he wasn't worthy to untie. There was this wonderful, miraculous experience when John baptized Jesus, that John saw the Holy Spirit fall on Jesus. And that confirmed to John that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised hero that they were waiting for, that he was the one that would baptize everyone with the Spirit, kind of bringing about this Old Testament promise that God was going to do a new work for his people. So John kind of really hyped up Jesus and said, look, this is the guy we've been waiting for. At one point in John's ministry, he would see Jesus and he would say out loud to a crowd of his disciples and and probably many other, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this caused many of his followers to start following Jesus. So Jesus says, here's a primary candidate right here, a primary witness. Here's evidence. You admired John. You were excited about him. You sent people to investigate his ministry, and he told you about me. But notice how it says at the end of what Jesus comments about John, that they rejoiced for a while. There was a term limit to their excitement. Yes, they had been waiting for this promised hero, and they were excited to hear John speak about this promised hero. But then they started interacting with Jesus, and now their excitement turned to hostility. Now they weren't excited anymore, and they pushed that away. So Jesus says, you heard this, but yet you didn't follow. You were there, there was a witness, but you didn't listen. Jesus calls another witness, this one much more grand than John the Baptist, the one that Jesus would hold in the highest of regards. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, even better than John the Baptist. For the words that the Father has given me, sorry, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, 
the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now who is he calling to the stand? God himself. God the Father. He's saying, God the Father has given me these works, and these works bear witness about me. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about the miracles that he's done, the miracles that they have seen. He's healed people. He's done things that are just inconceivable for a natural man to do. Jesus clearly displayed his power. We don't even have all the miracles recorded yet in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John. There's, there's more that's even happened. And John even admits that. He didn't record everything to this moment yet. So Jesus displayed himself with great power. And it says that the Father is using this as a testimony for the significance, for the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus would use this kind of argument a, a lot, and we see it again in the Gospel of John. He would tell people if they were hesitant to believe in his words, that they should believe in his works and see that there was no way that he could be a liar and a miracle worker at the same time. We see this with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, in his encounter with Jesus in John chapter 3, would tell Jesus, Jesus, we know that you're something special. We know that God is with you. We know that you're sent from God. Because how could somebody do these miraculous works and not be sent from God? So Jesus is saying, okay, you don't believe. You're having a hard time understanding who I am. And you're not okay with the claims that I'm making. Well, look at what I'm doing. If my words are hard to understand, look at the works that I'm doing. Clearly, this is confirmation that God is with me, that God has sent me, that I am approved by God. And yet they don't believe. And that's not enough. Before Jesus calls another witness, he takes this idea and he shows them. He kind of turns it. Instead of defending himself, Jesus kind of pivots here and he kind of goes on the offense. Instead of uh, calling up a witness, now Jesus calls a, a, an accusation, if you will. He accuses them of something, he kind of turns the table and puts them on the defense. And what Jesus says is, well, the reason you don't see my works as confirmation that God has sent me is because you don't even know God. You have no intimacy with him. You have no relationship to him. Look at, look at what Jesus says. Very heavy words coming up here. Verse 37, and the Father who has sent me, has he himself bore witness about me? This is my witness. But his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. What just strong words there from Jesus. You see how he makes that turn from kind of a defensive posture to now he goes on the offense. He's saying, I've called this witness God the Father who's given me these works to do. And as I do them, they confirm that I'm sent from him and that he is with me. But you know what? This is not going to work on you because you don't even know him. I'm calling a witness, the greatest of all witnesses, and you have, you have no understanding of who he is. It says, you, you have not heard his voice, never heard his voice, and you've never seen him. Now, we've got to be careful that we read this correctly. 
Because at first glance, we may read this and say, well, yeah, of course they, they cannot. They have not heard the voice of God. They cannot see the form of God. But we should not read this as like uh, cannot statements. Rather, we should read them as, as should or, or should have statements. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus is not saying, well, well you cannot hear God and you, you cannot see God. Therefore, you're kind of off the hook. He's not excusing their behavior. He's, he's accusing them of not doing something they should have been able to do. So these are really should have statements. You should have heard God's voice, but you didn't. You should have seen his form, but you didn't. A, a good clue to read him that way is that third accusation he makes. Look at verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. I mean, that one is much easier to understand. Like, clearly, Jesus is not excusing them there, saying, well, you cannot have the word in your heart. No, he's saying you should have. This is a book you should have internalized, but you have not. He is calling them guilty. That's what he's doing. So understanding that third statement that way helps us understand the the first two statements. They should have done these things. And if we're familiar with the Bible, we'll see that those other two things should have been something that we should expect from God's people. We see it in the Old Testament, that they hear from God, that they see God, that they internalize his word. And especially when it comes to the ministry of Jesus, these are the three things they should have been doing as they were encountering Jesus. Let's let's just take the first accusation there. So jump back to verse 37. It says, The Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you could probably think of several characters who have heard the voice of God. Primarily, probably the one that comes to your mind is Moses. The Old Testament describes Moses as one who spoke with God face to face. We know the people of Israel experienced kind of the the verbal uh, nature of God's revelation. They, They heard God's voice when God spoke to them at Mount Sinai, when he delivered the Ten Commandments to them. Did they always hear his voice? No, but they heard his voice, and Moses definitely heard his voice. And this group of religious leaders are hearing the very voice of God because they're hearing Jesus' voice. So Jesus is saying, you should have heard, but you didn't. So you are not like Moses. You are not like the people of Israel at Sinai. And you are missing who I am. Let's look at the second one. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Now, this one might seem a little bit strange, but it's very fair to say that God has manifested himself in many different ways in the Old Testament visibly before his people. A really interesting account of that is in the book of Genesis when Jacob, who is renamed Israel, in fact, at his renaming event, he wrestles with God or this representative of God. And he says at the end of this wrestling event in the book of Genesis, he says, I've seen the form of God. And what's very interesting is the Greek translation of that Hebrew chapter has a word in it, form. And that's that same Greek word that's listed right here when it says his form, you have never heard. That's the same word form that Jacob uses in the Greek translation of the Hebrew chapter in Genesis. 
So I think this is what John, the gospel writer, is trying to bring to mind. He's not saying, he's not speaking about the invisibility of God, that God is not visible naturally to the human eye in his purest kind of way, in his purest form of existence, but he's saying God has manifested himself to his people. So God has made visual confirmation of his existence in an, in, in an interaction with his people. He's done that before. He did it with the great father of Israel, Israel, Jacob, the one they're named after. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he's showing these religious leaders that they're so out of step with how God has interacted with his people. He's saying, you're not like Moses who heard my very voice. You, you are not like Jacob. You're not like Israel who saw my form. You have not seen me. You cannot hear me. You cannot see me. You are not in the line of Moses and you are not a true Israelite. And thirdly, Jesus says, you do not have his word abiding in you. This reminds me of Joshua, the great military commander, in the beginning of his kind of commissioning moment as he kind of takes charge of the people of God after Moses passes away. It's spoken to him that he needs to take God's word and he needs to hold it close to him. He needs to meditate on it day and night, keep it before him. He needs to internalize God's word. The psalmist writes in the Psalms, it says that he has hidden God's word in his heart, that he may not sin against God. So we have Joshua, this great military commander, and we have the psalmist, the great worship leader of the people of God, and they have internalized God's word to keep them from sinning and to keep them under God's blessing. And Jesus is saying, you have not done that. You're not Moses, you're not Israel, you're not Joshua, you're not the psalmist. You see what he's saying here? He's saying you are totally out of step, totally out of line of God's interaction with his people. You are not God's people. You don't know him. You know him by name, but you are not intimately involved with him. There is no relationship. And then he says, that's why. You do not receive the one whom he has sent. This is why you don't hear anything I'm saying. This is why I could pile on evidence after evidence, but you don't know God. You are out of line of your history. Look at verse 38. He calls another witness. Now, I think Jesus is very strategic about the next two witnesses he calls. I mean, the second witness he called, right, we just went through that, was God. But now he calls two other witnesses. Now, of course, they're of lesser kind of um, importance, of course, because God was just mentioned. But I think what Jesus is doing here is very strategic. I think what Jesus is doing is he's picking two witnesses that the Jewish leaders would feel like would be on their side. Like they could never imagine that these two witnesses would be against them. Look what Jesus calls or the one he calls to the stand again as a witness to the truthfulness of his claims. Look at verse 39. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What's his next witness? The scriptures. All of this. The Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, prided themselves on studying God's word. And they were great students 
of God's word. I mean, just incredibly diligent scholars would spend hours and hours of their time studying God's word, studying the scriptures. And Jesus says, you miss the entire point of them. Wow, can you imagine how shocking these comments are to Jesus' hearers? These guys pride themselves on their scholarship. And Jesus says, you don't know the book that you study. You spend hours of your day neglecting even your families. So you could study the Torah, so you could study the Old Testament scriptures, and yet you miss it entirely. What Jesus is kind of doing is this. Jesus is basically saying, you look at the scriptures, and the scriptures are like a treasure map. Right? They're pointing you towards the gold. That X marks the spot, and that's where the treasure lies. But Jesus is saying, here's what you do. All you do is study the map, but you never go on the adventure to find the treasure. You're missing it. You're, you're, you're mixing up the tool with the treasure. The map is key. It's vital. It's important. But a treasure map is supposed to lead you to action. You go and find the treasure. And Jesus is saying, this is how you guys handle the scriptures. You stare at the ink. You look where the X is. You look at all the little dotted lines that show you how you go around the mountain and how you find the treasure. And you just stare at it and you don't actually go and search for the treasure it's pointing to, which is himself. You totally miss it. You think this book is simply supposed to make you a scholar, but it's supposed to make you a believer. It's supposed to make you a worshiper. So Jesus says, you're missing it. You don't really hear it. The last witness that Jesus calls is actually at the end of our passage. So we're going to skip a couple verses. But Jesus ends off kind of this, this, this tally of witnesses here against his Jewish opponents. And he lists off probably their favorite Old Testament hero, Moses. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. And if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses was the hero of heroes. Uh, the pride of the Jewish people. He was the great deliverer who brought them out of Egypt. Who, who brought them all the way to the edge of the promised land. He was the great lawgiver. When God made his covenant with Israel. Uh, at Mount Sinai, he brought the law, the things that were going to keep them under God's blessing, the obligations he set out before them so they can have a relationship. It was the pride of the Jewish leaders to study Moses' law, to study his instruction. But we'll see later, and if you're familiar with the New Testament, not only Jesus, but many of the New Testament writers will show how the Jewish leaders really missed the point of Moses' instructions. The point of the law that he gave them. That God gave them through Moses. You see, again, just as they kind of misunderstood the scriptures, like a treasure map but never seeking the treasure, right? 
confusing the treasure with the tool, they also misread and misunderstood the law itself. We see this if we kind of expand our view and look at the New Testament's kind of understanding of how uh, Jewish misunderstanding led to bad religion, bad religious practice. What we see is that the, New Te- or, sorry, the Jewish leaders had this habit of viewing God's law as the cure to man's brokenness rather than the diagnosis of man's brokenness. They, they looked at the law and thought, this is how I will spiritually succeed. When the point of the law was to teach him their spiritual need. What they were confusing was a, a, a diagnostic tool to show them that things were bad. And they thought that this was the remedy. This was the cure. This was the vaccine. Well, now we have it. Now we're good. Just obey and we'll be okay. And that wasn't the point. The point was you can't obey. You're not okay. You need a savior. And this is why their opposition to Jesus seems actually very understandable because why would you ever want a savior if you don't believe you need to be saved? Jesus lists all this evidence Says John the Baptist, the guy you got really excited about, guy you sent a group of people to talk to, investigate his ministry, you don't believe him. God the Father himself has given me these wonderful, miraculous works to do, and I've done them and I've displayed them before you, and yet you don't believe them. The scriptures itself, I mean, even even beyond that of Moses, but all the scriptures bear witness to me, lead you to me, And yet you stare at the pages and you never go and pursue what they tell you to pursue. You miss the scriptures. That great lawgiver, that that great leader and hero Moses, the pride of the people of Israel, he testifies about me and he accuses you. I mean, what more evidence can you present to a Jewish audience here than God the Father, the scriptures, Moses and John the Baptist? Why can't they hear? Why won't they believe? Why won't they trust? Their heart keeps them from hearing. Look at what Jesus says in verse 41, the kind of verses we skipped. This is when I think Jesus gets to the heart of the issue here. Verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. Now, Jesus is about to set up a contrast between himself and this group of religious leaders. Now, Jesus starts off in kind of an odd way. If you look at verse 41 again, I do not receive glory from people. That sounds a little strange because Jesus has just called all these witnesses to testify about him. So it seems like, yeah, Jesus, you do receive glory or honor or praise. What about John the Baptist? What about God the Father? What What about the scriptures? What about Moses? Later, you're going to mention him. What Jesus is saying here is, think of ultimate approval. Jesus is saying, I don't seek ultimate approval from men. We see that in understanding the next sentence, the contrast of that sentence, verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
You see what Jesus is doing there? He's, again, contrasting himself and them. He's saying, I don't receive glory from men. And I see in you that you do not love God. Now, Jesus is kind of showing these two uh, 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 polarizing positions. And I think it's clear here. Jesus is saying, I love the Father. I love God. And so I seek for his approval, his praise, his honor. I want his applause on my life. I'm not looking for anybody else to validate me. I'm looking, does the Father validate me? But Jesus says, but on the other hand, I see something else in you. You don't love God. Therefore, you receive or desire glory from somebody else. Look at how the argument continues. It gets even more clear. We'll start back in verse 41 so we can get the flow. Or verse 42. 41, sorry, so we can get the flow. I do not receive the glory or glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See what he's saying there? You don't love God. You don't receive glory from God. He's putting those two together. You don't receive glory from God because you don't truly, in your heart, love God. Jesus, on the other hand, says, I receive glory from God because I love the Father. And so my desire is to please Him. I'm working toward His applause and approval. But you are not. There's something else central in your heart, and it is not a love for God. It's rather a love of self. You want to receive glory from others, the applause from others. Why is that? Because ultimately inside of you, you desire popularity because you are self-centered. You idolize yourself. You worship Yourself, You see the most valuable thing in your life as your self-worth. So whatever speaks into your worth, speaks into your esteem, the louder the applause, the more you'll seek it. You'll want it. And you are missing a love for God and the glory that only He can give. Our hearts keep us from hearing. Jesus says, your love for something else keeps you from listening. Here's the problem. It's not a problem of more evidence. It's the problem of a defective heart. Heart that deep down loves something else as primary. And it doesn't matter how much evidence is set before it. If the heart does not honor where that points, the heart will not hear it. I think oftentimes we pride ourselves on being creatures of the mind, always seeking and venturing after truth. And whatever is true, that's what we'll accept. I think a fairer way to see ourselves is we are creatures of the heart. We will believe what we love. We will believe what we feel like gives honor and credence to our highest priority. And if we love ourself, 
more than anything else, then we'll place ourselves in kind of this esteem echo chamber, right? And we'll only let in the things that speak greatly about us. But we will not let in any message that speaks in a bad way about us. We want anything damper our view of ourselves. I think this is a critical truth to hear in our culture. I think it was earth-shattering to hear in ancient culture, but I think the same thing is true to hear in our culture. We live in a self-centered culture. We are obsessed with self-esteem and self-worth. You hear it everywhere. We are infatuated with ourselves. We love to flirt with ourselves in the mirror of our minds. We love to look at ourselves, admire ourselves, flex in our minds, if you will, and, and, and admire what we see. Think about it. Look at how we are sold certain things. You need this car and you need this vacation. Why? Because you deserve it. We're told to to live our dreams, to, to speak our truth, to chase after our desires, to live our fantasies, right? Self centered, self seeking, and we wonder why we can't get along with each other. It's because we are obsessed with ourselves. And I honestly think this is why communicating Christianity in our culture is so incredibly challenging. Because our culture is so self-centered, obsessed with self-esteem and self-worth, it cannot hear one of the central messages of Christianity, which is a very pessimistic view of self. The scriptures say we're sinners, that we're guilty, that we're broken. If in our heart we love ourselves more than anything else, how can we ever hear that kind of message? Our hearts will keep us from hearing that. Our love for self will keep us from listening to that. To believe that we're sinners, to believe that we have shame, to believe that we have guilt, to believe that we're broken, how will that ever come into our minds as something true when our heart loves ourselves? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what does this mean for you? I think it means that we need to be very careful, very careful as we read God's word, very careful as we listen to God's voice alive on these pages, that we be careful that our hearts don't handicap our hearing, that our hearts don't keep us from really listening to God's voice in this book. Let me give you a very, very, very practical way to make sure that doesn't happen, to make sure that your heart doesn't keep you from hearing God's word. 
I'm going to get very practical. What do I think the best way for you to make sure that your heart doesn't keep you from hearing God's word? Read God's word in community. Read God's word in community. You need a friend to help you make sure that you're hearing God correctly, that you're hearing God in his word correctly. I'll give you an example of this just this week in my life. It may seem like a light example, but I think it's very applicable to this kind of situation. I was discussing with a friend, a very intelligent friend, we were speaking about kind of uh, environmental consciousness, right? It, being concerned for the environment, being conscientious of the things that we do in our environment, right? We're talking about stewardship of the resources of this planet. And as we're talking about this, now we have differing views on this. We respect each other. Uh, I don't think we're far off from each other, but uh, he is definitely more environmentally aware than I am. And as we're having this discussion, and we always have great fruitful discussions, no matter what side of the spectrum uh, we're kind of on, it's very delightful actually to be in dialogue with this wonderful friend. And as we're talking about this, I was trying to show my friend um, how God's word speaks to environmental consciousness, environmental concern. And so I I gave to him, I said, you know what, the scriptures, the very first command in the scriptures, it's be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Really, God's first command to his new humanity is make a family and care for the earth, care for the ground, subdue it, meaning bring out its potential. I said, then he places them in the garden. This is all before the fall, all before sin enters in, right? He places them in the garden and he says, I want you to work the ground and I want you to keep it. I want you to keep the ground. What is he saying there? I want you to protect it. So there's a stewardship that we have over creation. So I was trying to show my friend, look, the idea of environmental consciousness is is an impulse, a God-given impulse that we should promote. And as I'm done saying that, my friend, and I don't think he meant it as, as a way to kind of turn the tables on me, but he said this phrase, he said, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I don't feel like Christians talk about that. I don't feel like the church talks about that. And immediately I was like, ouch. And I kind of felt like, did I just load the gun, hand it to him, and then I was surprised that it shot at me. Right now, I don't think he meant it in a negative way, but I'll tell you what, to be honest, man, that conversation has just been nagging me over the last couple days. Really that question of like, man, I wonder if I am not a good steward of God's creation. Am I really subduing the earth, having dominion over it, caring for his creation like he's entrusted me to. I was really convicted. The point of that story is this. We need our friends to help us make sure that we're hearing God's voice and we're not just listening to our heart. We need to read the Bible in community. If you want to grow as a Christian, you need this book and other believers. You need this book and other believers. This is not meant to be a solo reading. We need each other. Let me, let me show you a passage just that, that shows you how important this practice is, right? This is going to get a little more serious than just environmental awareness or whatever you want to call it. This is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to this. Take care, brothers, lest there be any evil or in you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. What's the idea there? We got to make it to the end. True faith must finish, and faith will finish. And how does God bring about that finishing work? He uses other believers to speak into our life, to make sure that there's no unbelieving or evil heart in us that would cause us to fall away. We need people in our lives to exhort us every day as long as it is called today. That first verse there, verse 12, is a command on all of us to guard the hearts, not just of ourselves, but of every believer that we are in community with. We all have an obligation to one another. My job is to make sure that unbelief does not come into your heart. And your obligation to me is the same, to make sure unbelief doesn't come into my heart. My faith will flourish when I have you as a friend speaking into my life, and your faith will flourish when you have me as a friend speaking into your life. Read the Bible in community. This is why we are so excited to kick off our small group ministry here on September 21st. We're coming up to it close. We want you to sign up. We want you to get in a group. And if you've never been in a group before, been around other believers reading this book, I'm telling you, you are missing out on one of the most vital things to your Christian faith. And in a time like this where we're not able to be with each other, it's great to get in a group and at least start that participation. It'll start online and hopefully it'll open up a little bit later. We're hoping for that. But you need community and you probably feel it. Your faith probably right now during this time where we're isolated is not flourishing. Why? Because it wasn't made to flourish alone. You need other believers making sure that you're hearing God's voice and not just listening to your heart, but you're hearing him clearly from this book. So my encouragement to you whether it's on the app, you'll see the small group listing right there. You just click on small groups and you can join a group. Or if you go online to valleybible.org, you can find the groups page there. We encourage you, sign up. And maybe you've never done it before, and I encourage you to do that. And maybe you're listening to this and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You would say, Paul, not yet. I, I've still got some questions and there's still some ideas I really I need clarified. Let me encourage you from this passage. As we read this interaction that Jesus is having with this group of religious leaders, you need to hear that as you study the teachings of Jesus, you need to be careful of your heart. You need to be mindful of what you love and what is at the center of your life. You need to be mindful that this book is going to be challenging. Trust me, this book is convicting. It is challenging, and most of the time, it's not very flattering. But I think you and I would both agree that the best friends that you have are not those that flatter you, but those that tell you the truth, tell you the hard truth, and are there to help you in that mess. And maybe as I say that, you think of a friend right now in your head who speaks hard truth to you, but does it in a way hoping to help you. I hope you receive the words of Jesus in that same posture. 
Jesus is going to speak hard truth to you that is not flattering. He's going to say that you've sinned. And because of that sin, you've brought brokenness into your life. But he's not just going to say that and leave it there. Jesus is that friend who will speak hard truth to you, but he will help you out of that problem. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did in his death and resurrection. He died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again from the grave and now extends to you the gift of forgiveness and asks you to receive it in faith. He wants to take away all your shame, your regret, move you out of that brokenness and restore you to a right relationship with him. And my prayer is that you would make the decision to follow Jesus Christ today. That you would take that leap, take, take that jump and just say, I see that Jesus is not trying to hurt me with his truth, but he's trying to help me with its truth. And it's true. As you encounter this book, you're going to see it's not flattering, but it's helpful. And it's what you need. And my prayer is that you would step out to Jesus in faith today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you speak the truth clearly to us. It convicts us. It hurts us. It challenges us. But it is the best thing for us. And you don't do it to hurt us. You do it to help us. Oh, Father, I pray for every believer that's watching this, listening to this. Father, I pray that they would realize that their faith is only going to flourish if they're in community. That they need a group of people. I think we're all very aware of that in this isolation, in this shelter in place, in all this time that we're living in. Oh man, how great it would be just to be near each other. And Father, it may not start the way we want it, but even to see somebody on a screen interacting with us and asking us how we're doing, it's better than nothing. And it might be just what we need. And Father, we pray that very soon, We'll be able to move away from those screens and actually be able to meet in smaller groups. Father, that's what we want. We pray that it could happen very quickly. Father, for those that don't yet know you, who wouldn't say that they're following you, but they're curious about you. Oh, Father, I pray that they would hear this message, that they would see that you are a faithful friend who's not there to wound with his words, but is there to help, that you want to step down into our brokenness pull us out of it. Oh, Father, I pray that you bring them to saving faith in you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next week.